Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Pyle Aurora. Pyle is a digital anthropologist, a TEDx speaker, and an author of several award-winning books, including The Next Billion Users. Her expertise lies in global media cultures, digital inequality, and inclusive design. Forms named her the next billion champion and the right kind of person to reform tech. She's a professor at Erasmus University in Rotterdam and co-founder of FemLab, a feminist future of work initiative. I want to take this moment to welcome Pyle to the show. Welcome to the deep dive. How are you? Thanks for having me here. And uh, yeah, doing well. The sun is out, so my bar is low. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm still waiting for for my son to show up. It's we're we're separated by a little bit of geography and a little bit of time. Obviously, I'm in New York, and you're in Rotterdam, correct? Or are you in Amsterdam? Amsterdam, actually. Okay, yeah. Amsterdam, one of my favorite cities in the world. <laughs> so, I want to get started, kind of going through the book, the next billion users. I got an opportunity to to go through the book, and I found it to be not just about this digital landscape that we're facing, but also to be almost a philosophical type of wrestling with some of the values that we place on this next billion users, which are often in the so-called developed world. I'm using a lot of these terms tongue-in-cheek, global north, developed world, whatever you want to call them, as being, you know, choices of morality and, and values as compared to the global South and this next billion users. So I want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about what prompted you to tackle this subject in the first place. Sure. You know, I mean, just, just going by the title, right? The next billion users and the choice of that title for the book speaks a lot to the project and the challenges when speaking about these populations. Because what this title does is sexify an entire group of people, shall we say the marginalized majority, in ways that we can start paying attention to them. So unfortunately, you pander to this need to commodify. So the next point of news is basically has become totally sexy in the last few years. Why? Because Spotify, you know, Google, every tech company has come up with their own next billion user lab. After all, we're in a data-based economy. And with these many thousands and millions of people, especially young people in Africa, India, Latin America, coming online for the first time, you know, because of extraordinarily cheap data plans and mobile phones, there's been so much excitement that, well, the West is saturated, so let's look at these populations. They are basically data points to be, you know, extracted. So there's a lot of excitement on that end. Now, how do you get the attention of tech companies, you know, by saying, hey, let's look at poor people? That doesn't quite do the trick. So you have to say, hey, let's look at the next spring user market, you know, and then once you get them, uh, you know, in the room, let's see how we can actually co-design. Can we really cater to them as legitimate clients, consumers, you know, who have concerns? 
who have aspirations, who need to be, you know, taken care of in genuine ways, just like the rest of the users around the world. But it's not just being a user, right? So what drove me to this was that, you know, um, we talked about more than two decades ago. I was very interested in looking at low-income communities, very much because I grew up in a little bubble in Bangalore, in India. So I come from the middle class and, you know, a typical kid in the middle class setting in India. And this speaks a lot to Global South because of the extraordinary inequality and the missing, you know, in-betweenness, right? Is that we live in bubbles, whether it's how we us moving from home to school to, you know, to workplaces, to bars, etc. You live a very different life. And this notion that the majority of the country live in villages or slums, you, they, it's very abstract. It's as abstract as it's for someone in the United States or in Europe. So when I was in the U.S., I thought, okay, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do my first long-term anthropology work in a small village in the south of India. And in many ways, so it wasn't just because I'm Indian doesn't make me genuinely understand the whole Indianness of the problem, which is basically the norm where majority of people are struggling to make a living, are struggling to, you know, make sure that maybe their kids' lives will be better than theirs, you know? And I wanted to really, you know, delve into that. And I got hooked because it was extraordinarily humbling. And usually the pathway into these communities are these so-called development projects, aid agency projects. And that's another trigger that actually really got me writing this book is because it is accumulation of anger towards the development sector that comes from the sort of like a post-colonial mentality of let's tell them what's good for them. And the best way is through the so-called technological progress. If you only get a farmer, you know, on the computer, this is when the computers came out, then surely he leapfrog out of poverty by making the right farming choices. If you get women on the computers, they make the right choices on maternity care, children, they learn right, you know, as if the whole socioeconomic situations, cultural situations, context don't quite measure up against the glories of technology. So I think that's really the fuel that got me to write this is as much need to get on a platform with tech companies so we can, you know, have a foot in the door and start to really have a conversation about what does this whole co-design look like and not just some buzz term, right? To push back against development agencies think they know better and they need to do this whole, you know, top-down, trickle-down policy of how lives should be better around the world. And I think that's really been uh, the two targets. And, you know, it's actually, luckily, after the book's been released, a lot of good conversations have happened, hopefully for the better. But, you know, I, I'm a little more hopeful here. Okay. And actually, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this coming out of this development world and the way in which goals are set there, because I wanted to spend a little bit of time exploring those tensions between the the goals of the of these development agencies and other players in this in this world both social and technological against the reality of people's lived lives and you know why there seems to be such a disconnect between those two those two things well you know the development agencies from you know came from the post 
World War II consensus, right? The Washington consensus. And part of the reason is like, well, it was all about how do we do right to all the post-colonial countries without actually acknowledging colonialism. Now that's quite an art. So, you know, it actually basically came with this trajectory that a lot of the colonizers who went out to extract resources and violate entire cultures and lives of people over centuries, you know, could just like wipe that slate clean and then start off with this white savior mentality that they could actually save these populations out there by giving them the formula for success, which is, hey, you could be like the Dutch and live a prosperous life like us if you only follow these steps. And usually these steps are very socioeconomic and all about economics and less about culture. In fact, culture is you know, framed and continues to be framed as a barrier when it comes to the global South. So if you say culture in the global South, then it's something which is like a primitive mindset. It's a tribal mindset. How do we get them to, you know, shed their traditions so they can embrace the modern ways of life and become like the so-called us? When you put culture in, you know, the privileged context, right, it is something to valorize, to preserve, to celebrate, isn't it? So there's a sort of like double standard when it comes to that. And I think that's part of what the book calls out and points out, I think. And one of the aspects is is the undermining of it as even useful to the mobility of these populations in making decisions on how to use a mobile phone. Why do they use technology? For what purposes, right? Because, you know, reduce them into sort of utility-driven beings that they need to get out of poverty by doing these very steps, get a job, get education, et cetera. And surely they don't have anything beyond that because they're all to build a nation, like little, like, you know, soldiers out there to like build the nation from scratch. And they're not anything beyond that. So the effort is really to humanize them in ways that bring in the all the other stuff, which is basically the essence of life, which is what drives people around the world to do what they do. And it's not economics often. Of course, it's important to have a job or make and make a living and survive and, you know, at least make sure you're fine. But what drives us as something very innate and very intrinsic, which is to seek for love, to be entertained, to get pleasure, to basically to feel alive and we feel alive in different ways you know and it's way beyond the utility driven ways and you know that brings me to like a a big part of of where i spent my time when i was going through the book which is dealing with this this notion of who is given the grace to have leisure and who isn't and this idea of people in the global south Though I, I would make the argument poor people anywhere are maybe to varying degrees, but leisure is something that is judged very harshly when it's coming from those who are are poor versus those who are are not. And so I want to spend a little bit of time like kind of exploring how the the policing of leisure has become a social policy choice that I would argue goes goes back 
centuries, right? We're, we're in the beginning of Black History Month. It started yesterday. It's February 2nd when we're recording this. For It will come out m much later, but for those who are looking for a moment in time, we're recording this on March on February 2nd, Groundhog's Day, second day of Black History Month in the United States. And, you know, even enslaved persons, their leisure time was very closely guarded. What little leisure time they had was was often attempted to be mitigated for many reasons. One, they didn't deserve leisure time. And then secondly, leisure time was a time to organize, potentially, to make plans to escape or in, in a in a more favorable world, me coming from the Nat Turner model to murder your oppressors and then escape. Um, so, so I want to dive into that, this idea of, of leisure as something to be restricted, because you spend quite a bit of time discussing that, particularly in the early parts of the book, that, you know, tech companies would view phones and, and digital for one use and the people on the ground would have other uses for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much that you've actually said. So let me let me unpack that. So one is, of course, uh, technologies companies would love you to stay on the apps as long as possible, right? So it's not that they don't want people to, you know, like if they can get them for whatever reason they will, it's the preconceptions of what people are driven by that, you know, compels them to even look at certain demographics because of the assumptions that surely... If you're low income, you don't have the time, you don't have the, you know, you have limited data. So you won't divert majority of the data to music or videos when you could be like looking on searching for a job online, right? When actually the reality is that is not the case. People will and continue to so-called be irrational in their choices, you know? And that's because it is very deeply rational to them because it it's a coping mechanism. It's a critical coping mechanism for them to, because they feel that the system is stacked against them. You can't, it's not just that the job is out there. It's systematically they feel they've been excluded from these opportunities, as you very much know in the case in point of, with the conversations going on in the Black Lives Matter right now. And, and you know, let's go back even in, like, as you say, that, the whole area about around leisure, it's an ideology which has, again, double standards. And it goes back to centuries ago. The idea that certain groups of people, when they are immersed in leisure, are basically cultivating the highest form of humanity, right? And that is actually given to white people who are elites. And, you know, so it's not just what they do, it's where they can be at. I mean, just look at New York and Central Park. Said the design of Central Park was a radical architecture of space. I mean, imagine in that time in the 19th century, and you're saying that, well, we're going to put at the center of a city a space which is really non-utility driven. It's for, you know, not a mocked social behavior, but a sort of like you can stroll, you can do a non-utility set of behaviors there. It was a very radical conception or just the design of a park. Right. So you would think, well, isn't that like the epitome of a democratic and civilized, you know, city, country? And remember, this became then viral, shall we say, this architectural virality of the notion that you can have a space marked for leisure. And it became a sign of civility around the world, from China to India to the UK. But if you scratch the surface, only certain kinds of people could enjoy that. So if you're a black man, 
walking through, you know, Central Park in those times, it was not actually allowed. You were considered a lurker, a loiterer. In fact, there were signs posted. You were not even allowed to be there. It was an implicit but well understood sort of marking of who could enjoy that space. So there were spaces for what kinds of activities, definitely on sexual activities. So the whole Grammar's Green and uh, Central Park, which became a sort of so-called homosexual haven. And then it created moral panic saying, oh my God, look what happens when we allow other kinds of people to enter this. But that also spoke to a larger desire for being alienated from all other social spaces and urban spaces. So how does this actually translate to online in many ways is that we judge behaviors based on, you know, on who these demographics are and the algorithmic structures are sort of predetermining who gets to be visible, who gets to not be visible, what kinds of language gets sort of tagged to describe entire groups, entire cultures. So whose sort of leisure activities get undermined, as you've seen from the TikTok protesters, Black protester movements, saying like the, the TikTok Black creators have said that, well, they content gets appropriate and that gets showcased and goes viral, but they don't get the credit. And it goes down to that sort of, you know, ideology that is rooted in these algorithmic structures, isn't it? So in some sense, they're so historical and so far back. On the other hand, it is shockingly reproducing every generation in new forms and new spaces in the digital is just another kind of digital leisure space. And I think that's why I also refer to parks because I want to remind people the legacy of this kind of discriminatory perspective continues. And this is the challenges we have, which is not just decolonizing of these spaces, but of the mind itself to rethink that leisure is genuinely something which should be for all people. You know, I mean, in fact, you, you even have this uh, this whole literature on leisure where you people are like, they have a gentleman, you know, in the British days, a real gentleman is a kind of man who doesn't have a job, actually. He gets to stroll, you know, like in the French, the flaneur, right? And you just roam around and you walk around the city and that's a sign of like, uh, a gentleman status. <laughs> now imagine that you apply Absolutely. that to a low-income person. They're like, "Oh my God, get the police!" You know. <laughs> so it's <laughs> yeah, you can be a international man of leisure. Exactly. So it is astounding with how these hypocrisies and these ideologies have persisted in parallel without actually recognizing the obvious contradictions, right? So it's, it's interesting how we coexist with these kinds of dichotomies and normalize the contradictions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that you referenced Central Park because to take your well-thought-out analogy just a little further, you know, Central Park was literally built on the land that was inhabited by Black people. You know, they had, that was land that kind of nobody wanted, you know, that was, was considered uptown back in those days. And there was an entire village of Black people who that was their homes and they were removed from it. So it's just very recently that they've put signs up and memorials to that. So even in these moments, there's stealing and removal and erasure of of people that were in these spaces that are then appropriated to become spaces they can no longer be in. So the cycle is is a crazy one. And when you were talking about 
how we build parks and this idea of parks. And another idea that that occurred to me was the notion of hostile architecture that you see in a lot of cityscapes where things buildings are built and you know there's no seating. You know, there's and if there is seating, it's made really for you not not to lay down. You know, like they kind of want to keep us keep us moving in a way. And I want to continue on that on that a little bit because when I think about this idea of leisure and how we define it, we're also living in a hyper-connected world where unfortunately this hustle mentality has has become pervasive, right? Where it's it's almost a badge of honor to be overworked and stressed out and overscheduled and and all of those things. So this is a, a little philosophical, but I'm I'm curious, do we in the way in which we work, even know how to have leisure in in the same way. Because I, I think about how many creators, you mentioned TikTok, the things we used to love to do just to do have now become a source of being a commodity. Like, oh, you're really good at that dance. You ever think about making a TikTok so you can go viral and turn it into something economic? So I'm it's a long thread out there, but I'm curious what you think about hustle culture, hustle economics, and how even our leisure, our hobbies have become things to be exploited, for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah. It's a great, great question. I mean, there's so much in there. So one of the things, right, is the irony of it all is the, there was this expectation that as we make progress in society, after all, why do we do what we do? Isn't it to get more leisure time, more time with our family, more time to say travel, enjoy life, to read a book, right? To just be. And yet the irony is the more we climb that social ladder, economic ladder, we actually have less time for ourselves and others. And we become more lonely. We have a lot of, a lot of material ends and we have a far less in terms of social nurturing, right? And you're seeing that evidence across board. It's not just in the US, everywhere in terms of wealthy people. However, when it comes to low-income populations around the world, and that's a bulk of, you know, especially it's amplified because of the pandemic, they are facing high unemployment. And we're talking about, say, for example, in Namibia, where we were doing work, uh, more than 60% of the young people were unemployed and we're talking for long unemployment. Like, so they're not no longer even like captured in people looking for jobs because they've stopped looking for jobs. So even that statistic is underreported, which is shocking, right? So if you're talking about the young people, this is happening in India and in Brazil. I mean, look at what's happening in the US, the whole, you know, cliche, the great resignation. People are expecting something more, right? So this alongside this notion that, you know, reconciling what exactly should we do with these two relations, which are supposed to be a balance, whether you talk about play and work, work and play, or leisure and labor. And they have their own trajectories because what is leisure can become extremely laborious as you very well bring up, because if I'm a young person who's unemployed and really, particularly if I am, say, marginalized in many other intersectional ways, racially, gendered, et cetera, I I may not have a choice but to commodify my leisure because it's still the best bet. One, I have more control 
given that I'm, I can actually carve opportunities for new forms of employment, given that nobody's actually looking out for me anyway. And if I do actually have an option, the so-called choices of extraordinarily lowly paid and gruesome work, which can be very tedious and still don't pay the bills. And that's the most scathing factor is that I can work a full-time job and still not have a dignified way of life and no control and even no time for myself, which can humanize me, basically. So every person wants to be reminded about their own humanity, because the moment you lose your humanity, you're unable to get a reason to get up from bed and move to the next day. So we've been doing a lot of work, actually, from the start of the pandemic. I co-founded an organization called FemLab, particularly to focus on young people's you know, livelihoods, how they're working through these and across sectors, how they're surviving and thriving and making them carving new forms of work. And indeed they are. I mean, there's not to celebrate them in a sense because it's sort of what, what, what I'm scared about though is that it puts that onus on their shoulders because on one hand, yes, we should recognize this ingenuity, you know, this collective ingenuity of people who are at the margins who are able to say, you know what, screw it. I'm still going to try my best. And I have a lot to offer. And I have these platforms out there. And sure, I am commodifying myself, but I'm also building my freedoms, which will allow me to self-actualize. So there's no such simple thing of leisure and labor. I can deeply labor for leisure. And I can, within leisure, mark ways in which I can enjoy my labor. So they are intrinsically webbed, right? And I think the same thing with work and play. You could be very playful at work in a sense like everyday play is valorized, particularly in the innovation sector, because what is play? Play is basically working outside the structures that are given to you, right? So that in certain circles are very celebrated because it is all about lateral thinking, you know, and there'll be all sorts of corporate workshops around how to get out of it, how to hack your way out of all that shit, right? On the other hand, if you put play, if you apply the same logic to people who are trying to game the system, right, which is basically majority of the people are saying, screw this, the system is architected to be against me. So I am going to use it for a variety of reasons. I'm going to like, play around, play with that system and get away with stuff because that's the only way I can actually survive. So scammers, you know, to all kinds of online scamming to, uh, you know, a variety of different initiatives. And before we start to morally panic and say, look, these communities, these poor people, all they do is to create havoc and, you know, create misery and high crime. And it sort of reinforces the trope that, see, this is why they are, you know, where they are. So it's sort of a cash 22 situation, but we don't attribute the same kind of ingenuity because they are doing exactly what that is, which is playing with the rules of the game. And they're saying, you know what, we don't accept the rules of the game and we're going to, you know, carve our own opportunities because, hey, right now the government has not seen this area and the way we are making money, whether it's crypto, right? I mean, look at uh, Venezuela and all these other countries that have been, Lebanon, that have been devastated in terms of their currencies, they've quickly taken to crypto, right? Because they have very little to lose. So it is interesting that people who are most vulnerable are the ones who take the highest risks 
because they have far less choice. So I think if we really want to understand the relationship between labor and leisure, work and play, we need to closely attend to how much genuine, legitimate choice do people have, which will understand the nature of these two worlds and how they relate to each other. You know, I'm glad you brought up this idea of kind of gaming the system because you, you do spend a, a decent amount of time on that in the book discussing, like you mentioned, scammers and piracy and the way people will sort of move through the world, you know, what's what I think you referred to in the book and, and I've seen in other places as sort of like a gray economy. I've also seen it referred to as a pirate economy and a, and a bunch of, of other things. And when I read critiques like that and, and I just think about it logically, I, I often come back to, you know, Chris Rock had a, a, you know, he's a very funny guy, but just generally one of his earlier standups, he... He makes this comment, and I'm not sure if he came up with it, or but it's become popularized through him, that behind every great fortune is a great crime, you know? And that always stuck with me because I, I think about all of these people who are now the arbiters of what is good and what's right and how we should do business were the ones breaking all the rules in the first place, right? To, to get to where they were, right? The Dutch East India Company, you know, one of the first corporations in the world, made their money off of the enslavement of human beings, right? And trafficking those human beings and stealing them from their homes. And now we have, you know, Amsterdam, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, you know, there's a there's a very real part of our histories that are important, right? So I wanted to give you an opportunity to just reflect on that a little bit that, you know, who are these colonizers tell other people how they should live and what they should do, right? Like their morality is, let's say, low, <laughs> you know, relative to how they've built their fortunes, right? Like I think a lot of people in the world would say, well, well, you did all these things to destroy the environment and destroy civilizations and enslave people. And now you're trying to tell me how I could live. You know, another another funny example, this is on Twitter, there was like a Duke professor, and I feel comfortable using this example because I went to Duke for business school, so I could shit on Duke <laughs> as much as I'm like happy that I went there, right? And there was some professor and that was mentioned saying that, you know, he went to Africa to study how to get people off of wood-burning stoves because wood-burning stoves contribute to climate change and all this kind of stuff. And people were online saying like, well, how much the climate change is a Duke professor used to like go to Africa and tell people how to like live their lives, right? Like, dude, you flew from Durham to do this, right? Like it's a ridiculous notion. So, you know, how do we wrestle with those types of inconsistencies between those who are making the rules and judging the morality versus others who are you know, oftentimes trying to make their way in a world not entirely of their choosing. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny and it's not, right? Like, because it's so obviously out there that it's, a, you know, one can't help but laugh that, come on, like, you know, it's like someone who's walking around naked, like the empire with no clothes, and you're like, doesn't everybody see what I see, isn't it? So you have all this rhetoric of move fast and break things. And, you know, people have criticized it, but come on, that's really still the, I would say, the driver in Silicon Valley is that 
Hey, all right. The innovation really is about thinking out of the box. And when it's out of the box, there's a high chance we're going to break the laws. But guess what? We have our, we are, have our deep venture capital funders who have their army of lawyers who will protect us as long as we come up with a viable alternative business model and a way to make money, right? So once you are in that position, and of course you pander to the right kind of consumers. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. You, a lot of these apps have made lives easier for many consumers, particularly in the West. And also admittedly, everywhere else, Facebook has become the internet in majority of the global South. So it's not just, oh, the North was the South. But, you know, we focus so much on the consumption end. But what about the production end, right, also, is that, you know, who are the ones making these so-called, so you know, who are bringing the Californian ideology alive, basically, this whole, you know, 60s mantra, like, hey, you know what, we technology companies can do good, like the whole don't be evil came from that real, like, you know, the hippies counterculture of saying that, you know, we can really redesign a world for the better. And the beauty of, you know, this whole techno utopia was that, guess what? We can do it from scratch and we don't have to go into all the mistakes of the past. We can wipe colonization clean. We can wipe slavery clean, right? Because after all, this whole digital culture of the future can be made with all of us as equals, isn't it? So that was the, of course... Few people can now say this by looking into the eyes of others, you know, and not kind of shy away and say, all right, well, you know, don't throw any facts at me right now. Yeah, we, <laughs> so, we missed that boat. <laughs> yeah, but the fact is that, you know, while people are now more cautious and politically correct, I mean, that logic is still like riding high, right? Is that, you know, you still have those infrastructures, you still have that kind of venture capital funding for that. But when it comes to people who are, producing, we speak about the resilience of global supply chains. We're not really talking about, you know, the bottom of that pyramid where, oh, why are people in China at Foxconn committing suicide? Why are these workers jumping off because they can't get a basic fee? In fact, it's a race to the bottom where the, you know, hourly wage cannot even cover their means of survival while they make an iPhone. You know, so the sort of extraordinary cognitive dissonance is even more prevalent and has amplified in this pandemic era where we're seeing, you know, trillionaires now like Jeff Bezos at the same time, extraordinary growing poverty, even more so than before the pandemic. So instead of fixing the system, we actually have now, you know, entrenched it even more so with the sort of techno-utopianism that, look, now everybody's going online, right? I mean, isn't that we knew it was going to save us because while the planet is out to get us with all kinds of fancy viruses that, you know, we can come up with more names, betas, alphas, or whatnot, we have a little techno-bubble that will, you know, save us. And what I find very interesting is that, you know, a recent article in The Economist also just stated that, well, we have to acknowledge that this whole automation didn't quite happen because, you know, technically this whole, uh, the great resignation shouldn't impact you, right? Because weren't we not supposed to need all those people, especially the low-income people who are very disposable, you know, across the world? I mean, they were the people who were supposed to be replaced, to be disposed of. And 
to be automated, right? And in fact, it is proven that for any kind of technological empire to be built, you need just as much of a human force behind it, whether it comes in the form of a gig, uh, you know, driver, you know, zipping way, you know, to deliver your, I don't know, your mouse, <laughs> because you couldn't actually order yeah. three things at one go, but you had to order it one after the other, <laughs> you know, and the environmental damage to go with that, right? And we we continue to have these sort of divides of how we are looking at technologies as something outside and separate, as if it's somewhere out there online, when now a growing conversation is like, no, we need to speak about the materiality of technology and how it's impacting social lives of people across the world, how it's impacting the planet across the world. We need to speak in collective terms. And let's push in terms of then the honest figures of what this costs, right? Whether it's cryptocurrency or the NFTs or any of that, the weight of data centers, the weight of people losing their jobs, of being paid very little, of AI in its material forms, the energy it takes, all this has ramifications to our health, the survival of our planet, survival of our species. And we are not having that conversation as much, definitely not in the circles that need to be had. So, And that's critical because, you know, one of the things that I often think about is our, how we default in language to you know, using certain terms, using certain um, ideas, like all of them come from somewhere. So you mentioned this, that techno utopianism, right? And that move from counterculture to cyberculture, and I'm quoting Fred Turner's book, you know, that kind of details that movement, how the ethos of the 60s became the ideological groundswell to what became now the 90s tech, cyber culture, people don't use that term anymore, but it kind of dates the idea. And so I'm often wrestling with how do we replace these stories, this language that is very tech focused, it's very industrial age focused with other language, then get us other results. You know, like, is that in your mind, something we start, we need to start to do or think about? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we need to decenter tech in our conversations. I mean, in fact, FemLab is in the process of coming out with a book and we've coined the term FemWork because, and that's going to be the title of our new book, uh, because there's this whole, you know, flurry of femtech products. And it's again, feminist technologies, ah, at last, you know, women and, uh, you know, people uh, at the margins, in our LGBTQ communities, et cetera, can be saved with the right kinds of technologies. It can empower them, right? So, but look at the kind of femtech products. It's all about what can be commodified in those apps that can actually be sustainable for the venture capital funders, that is, right? And uh, yeah, so the they are willing to give money towards any kinds of projects that allow women, that is a major market, to track their periods and their maternity and all things to do with the body, which is very counter the whole feminist project. You need to go beyond the body, right? So that we thought like this whole femtech movement is still got tech as if that is the idea. And this notion of femwork 
is about and how that is going to impact the technological futures is more important because in the core of it is the people, the kinds of work and the workers and how they're shaping these economies. And much of it is happening offline, on the sides, at the center. And technologies are small, uh, you know, of course, critical, but but still small part of the social economic uh, infrastructure, you know. So I think we want to put the stories of many of these femme workers who are actually either initiating organizations where they're decentering the individual, for instance, right? Like, for example, Etsy always valorizes the, the individual creator, you know, dismissing this notion of collective creativity around societies where you don't need to have ownership. There's a lot of creativity and craft where entire communities have pulled in and they can be cooperatives where you can actually share the benefits. You know, we really need to start thinking, not just shareholders at the top, but shareholders at the bottom, meaning we all are shareholders in that sense. We all have to take a little ownership of, you know, whether it's a company, whether it's a society, you know, and that's what the sort of demo, democratic by design can look like, right? So otherwise, how are we going to redistribute all this wealth and how are we going to save ourselves from what I see as sub, sort of triple cornering of health crisis, uh, economic crisis, and the planetary crisis, all weighing us down. So it has to come through collective and cooperative efforts. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, I, I wrote a piece very recently. We need to find our each other, right? Like we need to find deep, deep ways to build solidarity. And it's one of the, you know, more frustrating elements that, we have, as you mentioned, very serious structural challenges that we face as, as a civilization, but yet we are still popularly defaulting to only technical or technological types of solutions, right? So we're just going to MacGuffin ourselves out of, out, of, out of these problems, you know, and as you kind of look forward and you start to think about, about that a little more, how do we start to sometimes use the technology to find ourselves, but yet build something that is that goes beyond it, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, to start with, we can be honest by, you know, looking closely and portraying the messiness of data. Like, for example, you know, this whistleblower and Facebook scandal that passed us by one of those many scandals. But... You know, what I found odd was that on one hand, of course, what was really publicized was how Instagram creates depression, loneliness, suicidal thoughts amongst teens, right? I mean, hey, wasn't a surprise. I mean, to many, I I think it was, I thought that was well understood. And I think many people are like, what's the whistleblowing part of it? I mean, we also know Facebook has built such a good reputation of not having a good reputation that... I didn't see any surprise whatsoever. But you know what was a surprise was that it said that twice the number of teenagers actually found solidarity and community on Instagram. But that was not written as much. The economists covered that. And I was thinking, that's odd, right? Because this is the reason why there's a loss of faith in mainstream media, because there's a narrative now that the mainstream media is you know, determined to have. But when you start to mask that kind of evidence, right? 
then basically you're feeding into the whole trolls that saying look mainstream media are not to be trusted and then we need our own truths our own facts what not right and i think that's something we need to also recognize is that social media you know has been badgered to death but actually it has also saved a lot of these young people who have managed to build connections communities you know online and we dismiss that very easily i think because it doesn't suit the strong narrative of finger wagging against these tech titans we don't want to acknowledge that google is good at anything or facebook's good at anything i mean it's giving too much but then yeah so it's a it's a sort of a loss what we need to do is recognize that these are become essential critical public infrastructures and spaces which means that they are like public utility spaces that need to be governed as such it's a rather than saying oh let's get rid of facebook no that's just basically saying that let's not have a public space no there's going to be spaces we need to come up with better regulation they can't just pretend to continue being mediators with no consequences i mean look at the whole battle between australia and facebook right but it already signals for something to come is that they in many countries like myanmar to other countries they are the main platform where entire institutions ngos healthcare system have been built you can't just say oh yeah if you are the right kind of person and you have any kind of like character you will not be on facebook that's a very convenient way of moralizing in the comfort of your living room especially when you're privileged so deplatforming is very like of these you know and being away from these platforms are privileged position that few can afford so you know we need to channel our energies in elsewhere and recognize also why people continue to using them despite all these issues on privacy violations and their lack of like content moderation or weak content moderation especially in different languages and we can go on and on different communities etc so just have higher standards have better enforcement but not like it's it's too cheap and easy an argument to say let's not have facebook you know and and you know i want to continue on that thread for a second ever like a couple more before we get into the final two segments of the show but i think you raise a, a very interesting point that these are really complex issues right and it's not to make it simple to just say oh it's complex so let's not deal with it at all but the reality is that you know we do have an opportunity to redefine the way in which we think of these companies because they will say they are neutral arbiters right rather than publishers rather than utilities because those words now lend us to what you talked about which is now the public good and so we're we're wrestling with this idea and again maybe i'm speaking from an american concept that we've been sort of drilled into our heads that like anything that's like public isn't good right public schools aren't good you know public hospitals aren't good like it has to be private because it has to be mitigated by the market in order to be good right so once we start putting regulations in that's now the hand of big government right that's now going to interfere with the more efficient capitalist model so i i wonder if we need to go back and start to reclaim some of this notion of what is public how it works and why it functions you know in order to then have that bigger conversation that more complex conversation about a facebook or any other type of organization like this 
You know, it's it's really a very good reminder that you brought up that of the sort of American perspective and which gets easily exported, particularly because of the American strength in technology and its global empires that has it, that it has created, right? That they sort of with their companies traveling around the world, so does the ideology of dismissing the public and valorizing the market or the private, as you well put. And that's actually the exception to the norm, actually. Majority of the world live in paternalistic, you know, public good oriented governments that are actually democratically elected. Look at the entire Europe. There's a huge trust or at least few, even the most right-wing groups, whether it's in France to the Netherlands to Denmark, will not argue against universal health care. Nobody is going to bring that up. Or pay so, social pensions or, or public transport, you know. So it's interesting because these are not conversations that are, that are being had or have been had for decades. It feels like very prehistoric. It's well understood. Uh, if you look at India and China, there's a lot of demand that governments do more to build. I mean, look at the news today. India has come up with its financial plans and it says, well, you're not doing enough. It's not asking the market. It's asking the government. You are not doing enough to build employment opportunities because in many of these countries, the welfare state is the norm. It's not something on the side. It is the norm where majority of people are still living hand-to-mouth, you know, whether it's in Ch even China, which is, of course, le gone leaps ahead of doesn't quite fit into the so-called developing country terminology, right? Even then, there's extraordinary poverty in many of its villages, and there's a lot of demand from the Chinese government to, you know, fulfill. And there is not that kind of strong dichotomy between the private sector and the government. The government does regulate companies. In fact, I mean, China was able to build an entire Silicon Valley countering the Silicon Valley of the U.S., and it should have been, a, you know, it should have been Europe, to be honest, right? Because Europe is the only one with that kind of deep pockets. But it wasn't, actually. And it is, you know, it happened because of huge state backup and investment and, you know, slow but steady moderation. And so I think this explains a lot of the sort of battle between, in, you know, the U.S. and China right now, because they come from very different ideologies. And I'm not saying, yeah, well, let's not be critical about what China's doing. Far from it. But I'm saying that the, the relationship between Chinese government and their companies are not that exceptional. That's the norm, the majority of the world, because it came from the sort of post-colonial context. For example, in India, right, when the governments were trying to become a government, right, when they were trying to become, uh, get, get their freedom from the British, a lot of the companies like the Tata Industries, right, were right there by their side to help build infrastructures, build the entire nation bottom up, where they were completely decimated, their resources were stripped, you know, literacy rates were terrible, poverty rates were like a skyrocket, and you needed corporations to work with the governments, all hands on deck. And so there's a legacy in most post-colonial contexts where companies and governments have been working in this kind of relationship. 
much closer and much more intimately. And it's not like the U.S. doesn't do that. They just, you know, I mean, think about the heavy lobbyism, right? But the lobbyism basically shows as if it's we want to get our vested interests in there, right? But actually politics and government is very much controlled by the tech and other industry lobbies. And it's almost too marketized, right? But it's the other way around. They are controlling government and everyday politics and depriving the millions of Americans who need the dignities of life, which is basics of universal health care and education, which is affordable. And I think that's something that sadly is getting exported around the world as that is okay and we need to have a debate. No, we don't. Maybe yeah. Americans need to look elsewhere and say, oops, yeah. Everybody else seems to be doing this. Why aren't we, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as a culture person, the story of the United States is a, you know, it's a rugged individualism, right? It's the looking out on the great frontier and solving all your problems by yourself. And that becomes a, a very pervasive idea. Every person for themselves here. You know, it's it's very much like, it's hard to understand it if you live in it. It's only when you leave it, which I've had the fortune, the good fortune to be able to do throughout my adult life, that I can recognize the differences in it, you know? So that doesn't make me unique, but... But, you know, even the, even the American context, right? The low-income communities without healthcare, I mean, the reason they were able to survive is not because of the rugged individualism, but because of the deep and generous collectivities in these communities at the margins, which is... Like there was an interesting article in the New Yorker about this, uh, that Americans are extraordinarily generous to each other. And all these, like during the pandemic, a lot of these efforts were created to, you know, pool resources, whether it's soup kitchens in San Francisco, you know, to a variety, I mean, like for homeless people to, there was so much to pool finances, et cetera. But there was a much more critical point is that America has a legacy of this kind of deep, informal and unorganized collectivities that have plugged in the major gaps of, you know, lacking of healthcare and education, et cetera, opportunities. But we should not be resting on them to, you know, sustain this model. Just because they're good at that doesn't mean this is a sustainable practice that needs to continue. Right. And I yeah, thought that absolutely. was that was beautiful because like, yes, let's celebrate this extraordinary generosity of human spirit. But let's not say that that's the solution. Right. Well, I think it's I agree to a certain extent that there is a certain level of generosity. But I, I feel like all of that and this is my own editorial. I haven't read that particular piece. It's it's like what I call like the GoFundMe <laughs> economy. Right. Like we're comfortable with this idea that, oh, you know, my friend broke their arm. And so, yeah, I'm going to give money to their GoFundMe, right? Or, oh, teachers don't have school supplies, but they made this really amazing video on TikTok. And so I'm going to like give them money or like we put out this, you know, what I call like the feel-good complex, right? There'll be some story about like, oh, look at this kid who sacrificed working for an entire summer because their mom had cancer and they got them the operation. I'm like, fuck that. Them shits are horror stories, right? Like all of that is bad, right? Like I don't want GoFundMe, right? I don't want like teachers to have to like sing and dance to get school supplies. Those are the things that should be part of the functioning civil society. 
But I think like America has done a very good job at taking things that people should perceive as horror stories and turn them into like, look at how good we are and look at how we've turned it all around. Like, no, fuck that, man. I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to be 80 years old and singing and dancing because I need like a fucking dialysis machine, right? It's a horrible thing, you know, or like. I think that's, you know, I think that's really, that's really well put because indeed it seems like you have to earn your way to dignity versus having the right to dignity. Right. Yeah. I think that's a big difference is why? Why do we need to earn our way? Yeah. And so I think, yeah, it's a point well taken. It's the saddest thing to me. Like if, if I go into like a store or something, like any store, it doesn't have to any retail or or whatever, fast food, very rarely, but whenever. And I see like old people working there. Right. I'm like on some hand, they'll be like, oh, look, they're so productive and there's no reason for you to be out to pasture. I'm like, man. I want to be out to pasture today, <laughs> right? Like nothing would make me uh, happier than being out to pasture, right? Like I don't want the. the oh, sp- me too. I, we, I'm willing to pool in resources with you to build pasture for us. <laughs> Man, put me out there. I'd be the happiest, fattest cow oh, you've ever God. seen. Like I don't want to be working at ninety, right? Like I don't want to do that, right? So it's it's funny, interesting, but. You know, America's good on myth making. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, and it definitely goes viral, you know. That, it definitely yeah. goes viral. So I want to get to the final two segments of the show. The first being off the dome, which are just some quick fire first first thing off the top of your head questions. And then finally the drop where we recommend anything for our listeners. So off the dome is first, and I have four of them, and they're really quick. All right. So basically, this is your way of getting the Freudian slips, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> and my daddy issues out there. Thanks a lot. You know. <laughs> my, my guests are savvy, man. They come up with really good stuff, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so given the fact that we've talked so much about leisure, what is your favorite leisure time activity? Stroking my cat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think okay. he I think he would look at it as harassment. <laughs> okay. If he, could, if he could file for harassment, he would, actually. Okay, well let's let's not get that cat a lawyer. Yes. Right? <laughs> um if you can be recording this show, and by recording this show I mean like working from anywhere in the world, where would that place be? Ooh, uh Cape Town. That's I a good choice. It. And I went there. It was just spectacular. It was like a little heaven on earth. And yeah. I miss it. So. Cape Town's beautiful. When yeah. when that that mountain, that fog is coming oh, over tabletop, yes. that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. If we were making a movie about your life, what would be the genre? <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Well, it would be, I would love it to be a murder mystery because I want, want something spicy to happen in the end of this. <laughs> so let's say the story is yet to be told. You know? Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. And the final off the dome, if you could have any fictional character as an imaginary friend, who would that fictional character be? Oh, interesting. Um, well, 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 this is a tough one because, you know, it taps into the fact that I, it's been a while since I've read fiction and I blame academia for it, you know? And it's a combination of my aging where I'm trying to remember the names and it's missing my brain. Like, so, but, you know, I, 
I think the it's more like the authors who created these fictions. Like I love okay. Tom Sharp, you know, and the characters he brought. I'm like reading Tom Sharp as my therapy. And I don't know if you know him, but he's this, you know, writer who writes these very like sort of dark humor of, mm -hmm. you know, kinds of works. Like very much like Vonnegut, you know. Okay. And you sort of like laugh, but very uncomfortably. And I would All like, right. and so I think any of his characters fits it because I like to be uncomfortable. All right. Awesome. That works. That's a, that's a great answer. Now I have a, a new author to look of and we didn't even get to the drop. <laughs> so that's awesome. So we're at the drop, right? So this, again, this is our opportunity to share anything with our listeners. I, I call them intellectual morsels, but that sometimes sounds too serious. It doesn't need to be serious. And it can also be more than one. So I have a drop and I'll go first just to set us up. And this is a, a new show. Well, I don't know how new it is. It's new to me. And it's on HBO Max, which I recognize many of our of our listeners are around the world, so they might not have HBO Max yet. But I'm sure you can find it on something else, Sky, or, you know, hack it, pirate it off of another site. Um, and the show is called The Sex Lives of College Girls, which sounds more salacious than it really is. But I, I just finished watching it this past weekend, and I, and I thought it was actually a pretty funny look at college life through the lens of these four very different women at a fictional um, Northeastern um, college. And, and again, it's on HBO Max here in the United States. It might be available on another streaming site globally, and it's called The Sex Lives of College Girls. And that's my drop. Hmm. Nice, very nice. I want to check it out for sure. I mean, it's it's funny when you say like it has it sounds sexy, but it doesn't really have that kind of like as sexual connotations as if so it is. And I was thinking of the just like that, where it says it's everything but sex. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But Which I'm sure it's not on the same caliber. I would not bring the two together. So <laughs> I'm not trying to you know undermine your suggestion anyway. But what I would, I mean, besides of course the two authors I just reckon I've talked about is Tom Sharp and Wanagut is if I had to recommend some podcast actually it was 99% invisible I'm a big fan and I think it's because it really tells the stories of people and groups and events that doesn't quite get like the limelight right and I know it's a real pop I mean many people probably who are listening to this show already have heard of this so if that's kind of cheating because it's a sort of same group, you know, rest of world is a great outlet for, you know, news articles outside, I mean, of the mainstream media. But what's beautiful about it is that the rest of world magazine and you know, news articles is not all about the depressingness of it all. It's literally telling you what's happening around the world in Mexico and surveillance. So, TikTok stars who are 90 years old in the Philippines or, you know, like these stories, it immerses you and they do investigative reporting. They have revived journalism in ways I thought was dead, to be honest. And I now read it religiously every week. It's for free. And yeah, I really recommend people to check it out. Oh, those, those are awesome. And things don't need to be like obscure mm. on the drop in order to be good, right? Like I, I find... Because I've given some drops lately that I think are things people are very aware of, but sometimes we forget. 
right? Yeah, or we true. don't visit them as much or we don't, you know what I mean? So the drop is all of free forums. I always hope that guests don't feel anxiety at having to come up with like some really arcane thing for, for, for the drop. But this has been an awesome conversation. As I remarked to you, I believe privately that I was starting my day with you, given our time difference. And I couldn't think of a better way to start my day. I'm energized to take on my, my Wednesday now. Ah, so that means you're not going to have your coffee then, huh? You know, I'm not a coffee drinker. Oh my God. Right? Okay. So <laughs> I've been, I've been sipping tea this whole time, but oh. you know, I, I always joke with people that my, cause people are like, Oh my God, you don't drink coffee. And I'm like, Hey, I'm a product of British colonial system. All right. So I grew up <laughs> as a, as a, in a proud West Indian house and we are tea drinkers here. Oh my okay? God. Okay. Well, fair <laughs> enough. I'm, I'm honored to be your caffeine for the, at least the first Thank cup. You. Thank exactly. you. <laughs> yeah. You've been audio caffeine. And this yes, been... yes. I, I'm, it's a huge honor. <laughs> so, but Thank it, you it's so been a much. Real, real joy, especially because I love the sort of free form. And, you know, I felt like we really can have a conversation. And I really appreciate that. So thank oh, you. Oh, thank you so much. I try very hard to be prepared walking into these. And um, you made it easy. Again, the book is The Next Billion Users, Digital Life Beyond the West. And it's an, an awesome read. Highly recommended. And you, since you mentioned that you're going to have a new book coming out, this is, we're going to have to repeat this maybe in like another six to nine months. I don't know when the book's coming out, yeah. but you got to keep me Tail posted and we're going to have you yeah. back on. All We'd right. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the deep dive. Thank you. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.